Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, March 17th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everyone. Uh, major companies have largely pulled out of Russia because of its invasion of Ukraine. Drug makers are the exception. We look at what the industry is doing instead, and we catch up with STAT's Isabella Cueto on her reporting on the effects of the war on drug developers in Ukraine. Next, it was three years ago that the top drug industry executives were called in front of Congress in what appeared to be a potential reckoning for the price of their products. Stats Nick Florco joins us to discuss what has happened, or more likely what hasn't, since then. We'll start with a look at the biggest biopharma news of the week. But first, a word from our sponsor. excited to announce a new annual initiative, the Stannis List. The Stannis List is the most consequential accounting of leaders in health, medicine, and science. Aided by a select panel of judges, STAT surveyed sectors such as biotechnology and diagnostics, as well as broader arenas like education and policy, to identify the most influential trailblazers, well-known figures, and unheralded heroes who are shaping our life science landscape. To see the list, and to meet this year's 46 honorees, visit us at statnews.com slash status list. That's statnews.com forward slash status list. S-T-A-T-U-S-L-I-S-T. So, Damien, let's kick off uh, Chatty Cathy this week with some breaking news on this Thursday morning. There has been a shakeup in uh, President Biden's COVID office. Who is the new COVID czar? Right. It is television's Ashish Jha, more accurately, Brown University's Ashish Jha, a uh, fixture, I think, in in living rooms around the country because of his appearances on television, but also, um, you know, a public health expert in his own right. He will replace Jeff Zients as coordinator of the White House's pandemic response. Yeah, this was kind of a big move this morning. Um, now, Damien, you uh, you are our Ashisha whisperer because you wrote a profile of the man last year, got to spend some time with him. Tell us tell us about him, what we maybe what we don't know about him from his many, many, many TV appearances. Well, yeah, the subject of that profile, because I have my finger on the pulse of the news, was not his um, actual expertise per se, or even anything to do with the epidemiology of COVID-19, but rather the phenomenon of him being such a popular television guest. But I did learn, I mean, you know, someone who's willing and comfortable to spend that much time speaking to the public, that in itself is interesting. And examining Ja in the context of other sort of pandemic micro-celebrities, I think what made him stand out was his comfort in articulating uncertainty, which is to say that then, as now, uh, there are things we know about how COVID-19 works, and there are many things that we don't exactly. And there is, you know, in strict scientific terms, one way of going about it would be to clearly articulate what is known and then everything else to just say, well, we don't know, so I can't comment on that. I think what Ja stood out for is his willingness to begin with, we don't know X for certain, but, and then kind of state the the case that one could make, and thus we can assume blank. He did this when there was a question as to whether the vaccines would actually work. So it'll be interesting to see him 
ascend to this plane where when he's speaking on TV, as I assume he will continue to do, or perhaps even escalate, it will be not on behalf of Ashish Shah, it'll be on behalf of functionally the United States government. So that'll be interesting to watch. It's also a really interesting, you know, pick and time for this transition because Jeff Zients, you know, his whole persona is kind of like this businessman, this guy who knows how to get stuff done. He's an operator. You know, I heard a lot about how he was instrumental in securing, you know, the vaccine deals and the, you know, enough supply of of drugs and things like that. But now we're at this point where some of the big news of the week is that Congress is uh, arguing over whether to provide more funding for the COVID response. Um, and then you have a public health person coming into this role where, you know, you've got the CDC director who is also a public health person. So now you've got a public health person in the White House, not this kind of operator role. And, you know, a lot of the coverage this morning has been about it marks a change in where we are in the pandemic and the response to the pandemic. Um, and I, I don't really understand that. I want to understand that better. Like, what what does that mean exactly? Um, I think a lot of people love Ashish Shah because he is so easy to, you know, watch on TV and he gives you messages that make a lot of sense. His tweets are all double spaced, so they're even easier to comprehend. But anyway, I mean, so I, I just think it's like it's a very interesting time to transition to somebody who's, you know, a public health person rather than an operator in that White House role. And I'm very interested to see what happens. It also comes at a time when we haven't had one of those typical White House COVID briefings in, I think, a couple weeks. And of course, the White House has been focused on the war in Ukraine. Um, I don't know if and when they're going to bring these briefings back. Um, It'll certainly be a different tone, though, (laughs) if led by Ashish Shah rather than Jeff Zients, who always was just a little bit sort of sarcastic and like ready to move on from things. So, Meg, I wanted to stick with you, too, on COVID, because there seems to be a lot of things going on with COVID, even, you know, maybe not getting as much attention because of the Ukraine situation. But, you know, there's there's this unbelievable new wave of of infections in in China and Hong Kong. And we've got stuff on Pfizer in their fourth dose. Like what what is at the top of your pecking order in terms of priority or important stuff that happened this week with COVID? Yeah, I mean, things sort of changed from like, we're in a great position, like last week to over the weekend, people starting to notice um, these spikes that are happening, or at least the upticks in cases happening in Europe, and hospitalizations in the UK, you know, Eric Topol has really been sounding the alarm about this on Twitter. Of course, it's impossible to miss the giant spikes that are happening in Hong Kong and China um, and in other countries like South Korea and New Zealand. The amount of mortality that's happening differs by vaccination rates in these countries. I mean, in Hong Kong, uh, very few elderly people are fully vaccinated. And so you're seeing higher mortality there. Of course, the spikes in Europe and the UK are concerning because they have so often been the harbingers for what's going to come to the United States some period of time after that. Um, BA2, this subvariant of Omicron, which is more contagious than the original Omicron, which is just crazy to think about because Omicron is so much more contagious than Delta, which was more contagious than Alpha, which was more contagious than the original. So this thing has just been a giant snowball of contagiousness. Um, 
that is driving some of these upticks. But in addition to that, there's speculation it's also waning immunity in those countries, as well as, of course, the removal of um, interventions like masks and social distancing, all of which is happening here in the United States as well. And of course, there's been a lot of attention paid to the uptick in wastewater monitoring levels. Oh, my um, favorite topic. Yes. <laughs> I love wastewater. <laughs> so in some areas of the United States, we are seeing upticks. It's unclear exactly how strong that is as a warning signal. We know overall wastewater can be a great warning signal, uh, but there has been some doubt you know, cast upon, will we see this turn into a major surge in the United States? But there's just this period of uncertainty. And amid all of that, Pfizer announced this week it had filed with the FDA for a an additional booster of its vaccine for people 65 and older. And that comes after some data from Israel showed that Uh, at least in the elderly, that can reduce infections and hospitalizations significantly compared with just uh, one additional booster. However, you know, we've seen some data suggesting in a broader population, an additional booster right now may not actually be that helpful. Uh, And so we're going to have to see how the FDA treats this. Um, We've been thinking about boosters more like a fall thing, and that's still being discussed more broadly Um, But this is really accelerating, and we kind of all thought we were in this home-free period for a certain period of time, and now there's just a big question about how long does this last? Yeah, you know, we uh, – I think we talked about uh, Moderna and their stock price in in previous episodes, uh, and, you know, they had a big uptick, a big surge in their stock price, and I think it's kind of around this idea that, you know, more boosters might be needed. So moving on, it is with some resignation that I must complete the bingo card for this podcast and note that there was some Biogen news this week. And that is that if you followed the years and years of controversy over Adjuhelm, their treatment for Alzheimer's disease, one facet of it was that despite the trials, the phase three trials upon which Adjuhelm was approved, concluding in 2019, Biogen had not published the data in a peer-reviewed journal. That changed this week as we got that publication in sort of a curious place. Adam, what happened? Yeah. So after all this time and speculation about where Biogen was going to publish the, the, the phase three studies, they did publish them in the Journal of the Prevention of Alzheimer's Disease. It's a relatively obscure uh, journal. It's not, you know, it's certainly not JAMA. It's not NEJM. Uh, and so that obviously that that kind of raises this question about whether or not like, you know, a more prestigious, well-read journals, more you know, journals that are m- more highly cited, uh, turn them down. Uh, you know, and I think that's kind of what a lot of people feel like happened here. Um, and the other thing about this journal, which uh, goes by the name or goes by the moniker JPAD, um, it's it's. The editor-in-chief of JPAD is a guy, uh, Dr. Paul Azin, who is a, a very well-known uh, supporter of the beta amyloid theory. He's also been a consultant to Biogen, although he says he's no longer being paid by Biogen. But still, he has some close ties to both Biogen and to kind of the you know the underlying theory of, of aducanumab or aduhelm. So all in, uh, I don't think that this was probably the publication – uh, news that Biogen wanted, uh, you know, and it sort of I think it was kind of met with a lot of derision uh, this week when it when it was uh, when it came out. But zooming out from all this, I think it's fair to say that regardless of one's take on Adjuhelm, this publication didn't change anything for the people who 
are certain that it should never have been approved, that it may in fact not work and needs further study. There was nothing in the paper that seemed to change anyone's mind. And for, for example, Biogen or the many people who believe the drug should be given a chance, I don't think this really advanced either narrative. It's just kind of a box that's now been ticked and then people can go back to fighting about the same things they've been fighting about since 2019. I mean, it seems like there's a couple things that will change things potentially. One is, you know, the national coverage decision finalization, which is expected by mid-April from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, where, of course, they've proposed only to cover Aduhelm and other amyloid-targeting antibody drugs in certain clinical trials. Um, So that'll be a big thing to be watching, although it sounds like analysts don't actually expect that decision to change. In terms of, you know, answering longer-term questions about whether these drugs actually work, that's going to take at least until the end of this year, right, guys, when we get some data from a different drug from Biogen, um, another drug from, is it Roche? Yep. Roche. And then mid-2023, when we get some data from Lilly. So as much as, you know, these sort of updates are are interesting, I think nothing's really going to change until we see these much bigger confirmatory trials looking at cognition. And if history is any guide... I don't know how you can be tremendously optimistic about them, but somehow we always hope. I mean, you have to hope that they're going to work. Yeah. And if you're mad that we brought up Biogen and, you know, reneged on our promise not to, just send an angry email to Damien. To protest Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the world's largest pharma companies have joined other multinational companies in scaling back their business and research activities inside Russia, while continuing to provide most medicines to those who need them. Earlier this week, Pfizer said it would no longer conduct clinical trials in Russia and cease investments in local suppliers. Pfizer will continue to deliver its medicines to people in Russia because curtailing the supply of drugs to treat cancer or heart conditions would cause, quote, significant patient suffering and potential loss of life, particularly among children and elderly people, the pharma giant said. All proceeds from sales of medicines in Russia are being donated to Ukrainian relief causes, Pfizer said. So other drug makers are taking similar steps. That's including, you know, Brissomar Squibb, Novartis, J&J, Merck, and AbbVie. Uh, you know, there's nothing funny about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but I did have to chuckle just a little bit uh, when I read that Eli Lilly is no longer exporting what they call non-essential medicines to Russia, one of which is Cialis. Right, which is not a tactic of war that I have ever heard before, depriving a nation of erectile dysfunction medicines. Diplomacy comes in many forms, but much more seriously, inside Ukraine, and particularly the capital of Kyiv, the Russian bombing campaign has disrupted the personal and professional lives of medicinal chemists who are an integral part of drug research efforts globally. Stat reporter Isabella Cueto has been reporting on the scientists at one Ukrainian chemical supply company, and she joins us to tell us more. Isa, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Thank you. Happy to be here. Issa, you've been in contact with a Ukrainian chemist and scientist named Ivan Kondratov. First, tell us, how are he and his family doing? Are they safe? Yeah, so Ivan, um, he's head of medicinal chemistry at a a big company, uh, Enamine, and he is, he's doing okay. I've been in touch with him um, since we spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago. And so his family, he transported them over to Poland, his wife and his two children who are 10 and six years old. And he's been in Western Ukraine sort of hopping around. Um, but he, he's doing okay as far as 
you know, as early as this morning when I spoke to him. So, Issa, as you mentioned, uh, Yvonne works for a company called Enamine. Uh, they're based in Kiev. Uh, what does Enamine do? Tell us, tell us a little bit about the company. Sure. So they are involved in the very early stage processes of drug development, and they provide these building blocks that are used to make chemical compounds that are then eventually, with many, many steps, developed into drugs. So one of the things I loved about your story was it had a lot of the history of explaining how Ukraine became involved in this business and kind of became an integral part of the drug development ecosystem worldwide. Can you tell us a little bit about that history? Sure. So um, it's very interesting. The first time I spoke to Yvonne, he mentioned that enemy and uh, their Kiev headquarters are in what was a former USSR chemical plant. And actually, his parents are also uh, chemists from the Soviet days. And so that, you know, that industry was there. Then when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was this reserve sort of of like what were described to me uh, as weird chemicals that hadn't been seen or really used in the West. And they essentially capitalized on that, um, on those chemicals and decided to start marketing them and uh, selling them to companies and pre-making them. And now they have this really extensive catalog uh, of really unique, unique chemicals, whatever, (laughs) whatever that means. Yeah, it's kind of a fascinating history how they kind of grew into this space or or rather like identified this demand through this like total happenstance of geopolitical history. But then, you know, with that in mind, now with the disruption of Enemines business and other companies like it in Ukraine, what kind of reverberations does that have uh, on the industry at large? This was one of the questions that I had, um, given how uncertain all of this is, how long it'll go on. And so for the average person, you know, you're not really going to feel an impact. It's not like the shelves at CVS are all of a sudden going to be empty or anything like that. But it's over the long term could really put a dent in the pipeline of drug discovery, um, as Derek Lowe uh who's, I think, a friend of the pod, (laughs) explained uh, to me. And so it's basically taking away some of these resources that were used in the very early steps of developing new drugs. So how has this disrupted their business? Uh, I know you mentioned that Ivan had to move his family uh, to Poland. He's now in Western Ukraine. Um, What about the other, what about his colleagues, his other coworkers? What's what's happening with them and and with the business? I mean, are they able to continue to supply uh, Western drug makers with these chemicals? They basically shut down operations once the invasion started on February 24th. um, And the employees just, you know, it was like, do what you have to do to keep your family safe. And so as of this morning, Yvonne told me that, you know, most everyone is safe and is in a good place. And so the total shutdown has now sort of switched to trying to strategize and sort of restart some of that activity that was stopped. Um, so they're working on logistics to get Kiev products to the U.S. and Europe and try to resume at least some partial activity in Kiev. Yeah, one of the things you mentioned is... Of course, they have a lot of flammable materials in their labs. Um, can you just tell us about what you learned about how they were trying to sort of move those around and and then also try to relocate folks to other places where they could potentially keep working? Yeah, so the the folks who stayed behind in Kiev uh, after that, you know, February 24th marking point, they tried to clear out some of the most flammable things from the laboratories there, um, just sort of hunker down and prepare the facilities should anything come to pass. Um, And 
and they are also trying to relocate some of their chemists to their offices in Riga, Latvia, um, in an effort to sort of keep things moving and keep people working and safe. So as you mentioned, this invasion has been going on for a few weeks now. What what sense did you get from talking to people in Ukraine about what the future might hold for them as they are enduring, uh, you know, what they're enduring right now? Yeah, so Ivan is, is in Ukraine, and I spoke to um, another scientist, Veronica Shoba, who's actually here in Boston, um, but she grew up in Ukraine and has lots of friends and family over there, um, and a few other people who have Ukrainian ties. And, you know, it, within the first two weeks, it was really this sense of, like, surreal uh, realization that this was happening and obviously a lot of concern for the folks who are still in Ukraine and in cities like Kiev or Chernihiv. Um, but now it's sort of evolving, it feels like. You know, when I was talking to Ivan this morning, he was emphasizing, you know, we're not sitting here in a depression thinking about all of the uncertainty. We're actually working and searching for solutions and, um, you know, feeling feeling confident that we can be victorious in this battle. Um, and so there's there's obviously still a lot of questions lingering, but it seems like the mood is starting to shift a little bit uh, to trying to make the most of the situation right now. Well, let's hope everyone you talk to stays safe. Anissa, thanks for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you for having me. It was a striking image. The seven leaders of some of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world all seated in front of Congress to be grilled on drug prices. It was a 2019 hearing in front of the Senate Finance Committee. And as Stats Nick Florco wrote this week, it seemed like proof that Washington was within striking distance of actually reining in the industry's high prices. Yesterday, the committee's top Democrat, Senator Ron Wyden, chaired another hearing on drug pricing. But it was anything but a victory lap. Nick joins us now to discuss. Nick, welcome back to the Read Out Loud. Thanks for having me. So let's start by going back to that more innocent time that was 2019. Why was there an expectation that some real change could actually be afoot after so many years of political posturing and little action? I think the biggest thing was that there was real bipartisan interest in reigning in high drug prices. Uh, and we say that a lot in Washington, that things there's bipartisan interest in doing whatever. But this was real. I mean, we had Senator Chuck Grassley, who was a Republican leading the Senate Finance Committee. We had Senator Ron Wyden, the Democrat, and the two of them were really had their eyes set on reigning in high drug prices. Uh, and this hearing was the clearest sign of that. I mean, they seemed to really work together on this hearing and both seemed invested in passing sweeping legislation. It, it really looked like we were going to have some sort of movement at that moment. So in your story, you go through several metrics to gauge whether anything actually has changed. So let's go through them, starting with the first one you talk about, which is sticker prices. So what's happened with them and why do they matter? So what's happened with them is they keep going up. Um, you know, defenders of the industry will argue that they've been going up perhaps at a uh, a less drastic rate, um, but they're certainly still going up. You know, I point out that Pfizer, for example, their, their breast cancer drug eye brands, it costs $2,100 more per month than it did in February 2019 when this hearing happened. Um, and these matter because 
A lot of patients, what they pay out of pocket is based on list price. Of course, if you don't have insurance, you're actually paying the list price. But for the folks who, for example, have coinsurance, you know, they're paying a percentage of the list price every single time they go to the pharmacy counter. And so sticker prices matter in terms of what people actually pay out of pocket. There's a lot of discussion and debate about how much uh, U.S. citizens pay for drugs compared with other countries, and there's been efforts to change that. What's the status of of that situation? Uh, We're still paying a lot more for prescription drugs. Uh, Virtually nothing has happened to change that scenario as I lay out in the story. I mean, I looked, for example, at Revlimid. Uh, the cancer drug. And, you know, a 25 milligram pill of that drug retails in the U.S. for roughly $833 for a single pill. If you go to the province of Ontario, you know, they have a very handy website where you can look up the price that their Ministry of Health pays. They pay $275 for the same pill. Uh, So virtually no movement on that issue at all. And we've seen a lot of the major policy proposals to try to change that basically abandoned over the last few years. So as for the drug industry's favorite topic on this subject, the rebates that they provide to uh, pharmacy benefits managers, and we could do a whole hour just on the intricacies of that topic, but kind of in this vein, could you briefly walk us through this issue and what's transpired on it since 2019? Sure. So basically, you know, what happens is drug makers set a high sticker price for a drug, and then they rebate typically a significant portion of that back to a middleman as a pharmacy benefit manager. And drug makers will point to uh, the system of rebates as the reason why their list prices keep going up. And they will note that the net prices, the price that they're actually paying after rebates, are actually going down. So this is basically their main proof point to say, hey, we're not the issue here. Drug prices aren't going up because we're getting greedier and greedier. Actually, somebody else is getting richer and richer, and it's the middlemen. Uh, And, you know, drug makers sometimes have a pretty good point to, uh, a pretty good point here. I mean, I'm struck by insulin as one example where drug makers have a pretty compelling story to tell. I mean, with insulin, net prices continue to go down despite list prices going up. I mean, take Sanofi that makes Lantus. The net price for their insulins have decreased by 54% since 2012, according to a recent report from the company. Uh, But the problem for pharma is that the point really hasn't sunk in with lawmakers. I mean, there are some lawmakers who definitely do have middlemen and rebates in their crosshairs. But by and large, lawmakers are far more interested in talking about list prices than net prices and far more interested in blaming pharma than any of the people in the supply chain. And then you also know the only real accomplishment from lawmakers has turned out to be a flop. Explain. Yeah, I mean, this is <laughs> this one was interesting because this is a bill that I had followed for quite a while in covering drug pricing. So lawmakers passed a bill called the Creates Act uh, that some lo- that some listeners might remember. Basically, the bill was supposed to allow generic drug companies to sue brand companies when uh, when the brand company was basically illegally delaying them from entering the market. Uh, but what I found out was that despite the fact that this is now law. Only one drug maker has ever used the CREATES Act to file a lawsuit, and we didn't even get through trial on that lawsuit. We that, that lawsuit was eventually voluntarily dismissed. And so, you know, this was really held up as a, a big achievement in, in fixing sort of like the anti-competitive games that the drug makers sometimes use to keep competition off the market. And what we're really seeing is that it, 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 no one's using it. Uh, it, it really is a, a, a pretty significant flop, I think. 
So, Nick, drug prices are one of the only things that both political parties enjoy attacking equally. Maybe daylight savings time is the second one. Um, why does nothing ever change? You know, is there any reason to expect that uh, expect the situation to you know to improve or to change? I guess people are holding out hope. I don't think anybody that's pushing for drug pricing reform is saying that it's completely dead. I mean, hypothetically, there's a chance that that Democrats, this Congress, do get something done, but no one's really sketched out a clear path forward. And I say there's a clear, there's a chance because the lawmaker who essentially killed the Democrats package last time, Senator Joe Manchin, he did say earlier this month that if Democrats want to craft a, a scaled down spending package, one of his priorities is prescription drug pricing. So we, we at least know that there's some hope that this will be included in some spending bill the Democrats are, are planning to craft. But I haven't heard anything realistic about how that spending package actually comes together. One follow-up question, Nick. If you spend any time on Twitter and you see tweets from drug industry folks or people affiliated with biopharma, you know, they always point to the one of the evil actors here is kind of hospitals and hospital spending, hospital billing. And, and they say, you know, that's a much larger portion of the overall healthcare spending, whereas drug spend is much lower. And why aren't we doing anything about how hospitals bill for their services rather than sort of focusing so much on drug pricing? Does that argument have any traction? Is it getting anywhere in D.C.? I don't think it's getting anywhere in D.C., to be honest. I mean, it's just it, – this has been the perpetual frustration, I think, of anybody in the pharmaceutical industry is that the pharmaceutical industry is just – beating up on them is, is a winner politically and, and not in the same way as beating up on any other piece of the healthcare supply chain. I mean, as somebody who covers this whole supply chain, I mean, every piece has its issues – but nothing sticks quite like uh, disdain for big pharma. Uh, and, you know, I think there's something to be said, quite frankly, to the fact that, you know, there's a hospital in almost every lawmaker's district. Not every lawmaker has a big as a pharma company in their district. Uh, and, you know, there's just something about that presence and the fact that everybody sort of has a story about their local hospital, I think, that keeps them a bit safer from major reforms is the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, pharma has been calling for every other piece of the supply chain to be reined in for years now, and they keep being the ones that are in the spotlight despite all of their efforts. Nick, thanks as always for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Embanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you think Congress will ever do anything about drug prices. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.